welcome to Rock Paper Swords, the historical action and adventure podcast. My name is Matthew Harfey. And my name is Stephen A. McKay. We're both best-selling historical fiction authors, and together we chat about all things historical and anything that could fall under the banner of action and adventure in books, film, TV, and games. And we also talk about rap music from time to time. Our guest today has written for Doctor Who, Torchwood, Primeval, Stargate, Warhammer, Slain. I don't even know if you pronounce it Slain. Slain, Slain or something. I don't know. Anyway, we can talk about that too. (laughs) Fireborn, Pathfinder, Arkham Horror, and Rogue Angel. He won the International Media Association of Tie-In Writers Award for his novel Shadow of the Jaguar and the inaugural Lifeboat to the Stars Award for Tau Seti, co-authored with international best-selling novelist Kevin J. Anderson. Writing as Matt Langley, his young adult novel Black Flag was a finalist for the People's Book Prize 2015. He's written the Monster Manual Carte Monstorum for the gothic horror RPG Lex Occultum, as well as campaigns and world books for Trudvang Chronicles. His name is Stephen Saville, and he is currently the lead narrative designer on two mobile game projects for Yuzu Games and Big Point. One is a huge Viking Kingmaker adventure, and the other is a spin on the darkest fairy tales out there. Welcome to Rock, Paper, Swords, Stephen Saville. Hello. Thank you very much. And And uh, nice to be here. Well, nice to have you here. And um, what what a lengthy intro. And all of those things, many of those which I couldn't pronounce properly. So is it Slain or Slain or Slonya or? Well, I I have to throw my hands up and say I just called him Slain. Yeah. I always called him Slain since I was about six. So from now on, we're going to call him Slain then. That's it. So um, so the first thing I, I was to ask you, with, with all of that history of all the different things that you've written and over a, quite a lengthy period of time, I guess, um, when did you start writing, and how did you first get published, Stephen? Oh Lord, okay, uh, this, this, <laughs> this is a story longer than the intro. I shall sit forward. Right, so I, I started, I guess, when I was like eighteen years old, and I got it into my head that it would be more fun to write a book than it would be to go to university lectures. So I would skip the lectures in the morning to sit and write at home. And, and I kind of you know, I wanted to be the next Terry Pratchett, I guess. So I spent ages writing this uh, very uh, juvenile is the word for it. Um, comic fantasy called Old Yawn and the Wizard's Banana. And, and it was how magic was intrinsic to fruit living things and it was all very strange and very silly uh, but it, it it got the it got the buzz going you know you so this is fun as silly as it is i'm enjoying the stupid jokes about you know she rolled her eyes she rolled her eyes at me i picked them up and rolled them right back and and that kind of really terrible humor and then i thought no you know what i'm gonna try and do something proper and i wrote a story there was a magazine called fear uh, it was a newsfield magazine, buying Smiths and all that. And I so I wrote a story for that, and and they bought it and paid like two hundred and twenty pound for a short story, which in nineteen ninety ninety one that was a lot of money. You know that was a third of my grant. 
and it took me I don't know three days to write it so I thought you know this is easy I'm gonna I'm gonna do loads of these and I wrote, I wrote a series of stories that ended up in um shall we say top shelf magazines is that a nice way of putting it Cardinal bags yeah exactly escort fiesta stuff like that <laughs> um rattle. um jazz mags I, I call a, them, <laughs> lad mags yeah <laughs> yeah so I, I i did a bunch of these with with you know wonderful titles like beating the meat uh, which is a rocky <laughs> ripoff and, and, and stuff like this um and i essentially tripled my grant by doing this uh, again it's like i'm like i don't know i'm about 19 at the time and I'm thinking this is really, really easy. Riches galore await. I'm going to be a superstar. It's going to be incredible. Uh, I know. Fear are saying they want they want to do serialized novels, something like forty thousand words long. I'm like, okay, I shall write one. So I spent, I think, twenty one days writing it, submitted it, and it landed on their desk the day. That the parent company went into liquidation and went bankrupt. Right. So I was suddenly sat with a 40,000 40, word story that I couldn't do anything with. And like no that's one in they, their right that's mind they were was, paying they were paying too much for the short stories. That's well, why they went bankrupt. It, actually, it was I believe it was two things that killed them. They launched a caravan magazine that didn't sell. Why does that not surprise me? Well, the owner of the company was a mad caravan holiday person, I think. And they launched a, a sister magazine called Frighteners. And it had an Eric Masterton, uh, sorry, a Graham Masterton story in it called Eric the Pie. And it was basically a cannibalism story. W.H. Smiths, who had ordered, I think, 30,000 plus copies, got it and then didn't put it on the shelf because it was such a grotesque story, they couldn't be seen selling it in public. Uh, the double hit of those two things put them out of business. Wow. Uh, so they lasted, like, I think two more issues after that, but they couldn't get the the, the mags in. And, it, I mean, it was a tragedy. If you're a horror fan, those... Mm. And actually, if you're a, a gamer, you know, Crash, Zap, C64, yeah. All, yeah. all of those, they were all the same company. Um, yeah, I used to read Zap. So, yeah. And it, I mean, it's a real loss when they all just suddenly disappeared overnight, the whole gamut of them just went. Um, so I'd say I was, I was sat with this 40,000 word story, which isn't long enough to sell to a publisher and it's too long to sell to any magazine. And I thought, you know what? I'm, I'm going to go up to the library, get a copy of the Writers and Artists Handbook, go through and pick 10 agents. And I'm going to write to the 10 agents and I'm going to see if I can interest any of them in this 40,000 word story. So I, I went through, I picked out 10 at random, basically looking on what names felt good. Uh, wrote this ridiculous letter that was about 10,000 words long, explaining how I viewed my future, the next 25 years of writing, all of this, uh, and sent it away. And what, within three days, nine of the 10 had written back and said, please send us the manuscript to look at. Um, and then I sent it. I, actually, I, I had to borrow money to go to the video store so that they would photocopy ten, uh, nine copies of the manuscript 
to post away because I mean I didn't have a printer that was capable of printing that much. So we then so I posted the nine copies away, and within I think three days of it leaving my house, we had the first phone call at ten o'clock at night from one of the agents saying I want to take you on, um, which was a little bit surreal, and. You know, uh, one of the agents wouldn't believe that I wasn't like a 50 year old man and that hadn't been published a dozen times before. Um, they thought I was a, um, you know, like a con, a, a yeah. guy yeah. trying to create a pseudonym to rebuild a career or whatever that hadn't worked because the writing, as they said, was far too good for a 19 year old. And it's like, well, no, I'll come down and meet you. It's fine. <laughs> so I went down to London. I met them. We talked and we got on really well. And they said, yeah, okay. I got, I think I had, I think seven of the nine offered. Wow. And I accepted the first one who offered because I thought she had the most enthusiasm for it. Not necessarily the right business plan, but there you go. From there, she suggested I try to expand it by 20,000 words to 60,000, which would put it in the line of Elric. And that's yeah. sort of Michael Moorcock thing. Yeah, novel. Louis L'Amour, Pulp Fiction. Exactly. Kind of, yeah, and, and 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 basically said, you know, can you add a bit Sorry. more magic to it, make it a little bit more spectacularly fantastic and strange? So I, I, I took another two weeks and I added, you know, a nice fairy dust sprinkle of magic all across it, and she started submitting it, and it got brilliant rejections. And then it got an acceptance um, and it got an acceptance with Transworld, who were at the time were Corgi and, 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 and all of these. And it was a, it was a lovely letter. It was, a, it was along the lines of um, we don't think this is a book we can launch in hardcover. But considering, you know, the writer is 19 years old, we see a fantastic career ahead of him and think it's wise to grab this now and build an author rather than risk losing him to someone else. So I'm like, yeah, I'll take the money. Um, so we did the deal. You guys will know publishing is glacially slow. Two things happened at this point or in the next year while we were waiting. Number one was the dissolution of the netbook agreement. And that basically meant that Waterstones didn't have to sell the books at you know, 99p or 199 or 2.99 cover price. They could put whatever price they wanted on it. They could do uh, buy two, get one freeze and all this that they hadn't been able to do before. And the other thing that happened was Sting went on his rainforest crusade. <laughs> and I'm sort of looking at you and thinking, are you of an age like I am? I think you're a bit younger than me. Stephen, Stephen's a bit what, younger. How, how old are you? Yeah, I'm 53. Yeah, I'm 45. I'm, I, I'm he's 45. I'm 52 in like two months. So okay, so you're of an age. So you'll I'm remember this. Yeah, you'll remember this. In the course of 12 months, um, it went from being able to go into Waterstones and buy, say, the new, or say, buy buy a copy of Eternal Champion Elric because we talked about that uh, for 49 pence, to it being 79. To it being 99, to it being 149, to it being 249. And because of 12 months, paperbacks absolutely skyrocketed. 
And I think at the end of the 12 months, something like the Belgariad, you know, David Eddings one went from 79 pence to £4.99. It was just this massive charge of prices. And as a result, the publisher called my agent and said, look, we can't afford to do all the books we're going to do. Paper prices are too high. We're going to instead, we're going to have to, um, have you frozen? No, no, we're just listening. <laughs> just listening. In oh, okay. Sorry, the screen's <laughs> completely froze on that. Yeah. So, okay. So the, the, so the, the, the publisher wrote and said, we're going we to have to let go. Yeah, I wasn't sure if I'd frozen. If they're going to let go 20 writers that they'd signed up. And because mine was so fantastic and, and tastes were changing because Thomas Harris had just done Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. And everything was gearing towards a more realistic serial killer kind of thing rather than the fantastic horror. Uh, I was welcome to keep the advance, but the book wouldn't come out. Uh, and that was like my my overnight sensation. <laughs> it's like, OK, so the book didn't happen. The sequel, because I'd been advised by uh, Richard Lehman. Just just a quick question, just just a detour for, off of that. Just a question about that, because I was just thinking about the advance thing um so normally when you get an advance it's paid out in two or three or four chunks right you get like one when you hand out the when you hand in the manuscript or one when you sign the the, the contract one when you sign the when you hand in the manuscript or one when it's published for example yes so what happened in your case did you get so you got the one on signing and the, I, the I on signature of the delivery i didn't get the publication payment right but it so still worked two out thirds of the advance then yeah. So I mean, it was it was uh, for nineteen ninety. Oh God, like ninety one, ninety two. That was still a chunk of money. Yeah. So how much did you say that yeah. was? Because I, I you... about three thousand pound. Okay. So the right. no, was back then, right. good, good money. Yeah. And I got to keep three. Well, I mean, think about it. Um, companies like I mean, I'll, I'll I'll quote back library. They were still they were still playing that sort of money in 2020 21 mm-hmm. so yeah that's a 30-year gap and the advance didn't change yeah for a first-time yeah. writer it's it's a staggering thought really but yeah so then i'd taken this advice to write a big thick substantial book and i'd written a hundred eighty thousand word horror novel Oof. which was pretty much the stupidest thing i could have done because with paper prices going through the roof, a bit like now, actually, shorter was better. Um, and, and my agent couldn't sell it, so she dumped me. And it's like, okay, that's a, a glorious start. <laughs> At least you had three grand. Oh, yeah, no, exactly. And I actually, I, I think off the top of my head, my first, because uh, I, I, did, I did, after that, I did a bunch for, I did a bunch for uh, Henderson's, which became Dorling Kindersley. Um, and I I did... Um, do, you remember, do you remember Fun Facts? Fun Facts. They were like file faxes. Yeah, they were like file faxes, and they could have like facts in, or they might have a story that you slit, slot into the file facts. Um, and they did, a, they did a series of uh, horror. They did a... a 
like preteen romance and this sort of thing. And I got recommended for the horror. But when I talked to the editor, she literally just finished acquiring and she asked if I could do a preteen romance. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I can do that. Yeah. I don't have a clue what preteen romance is, but I can do that. Um, and basically she says, great. We've got the acquisitions meeting tomorrow at three o'clock. So can you get the outline proposal on my desk? Before I go in at two. Wow. And I'm like, yeah, okay. of course, I can do that. Now, you have to think again. This is like 1992. There's no email. I had to fax it. So that involved having to write the entire outline of what the story was going to be, go to the post office, pay them to use the fax machine to fax it and to london to the editor and get it to her before time um whilst not having a clue what preteen romance was yeah so i uh i, I and before I the internet phoned... oh so yeah you so i mean you i didn't research I, yeah. it yeah so I, I phoned my girlfriend up and i'm like i want you to get all of your girlfriends and we're coming to the pub beers are on me and you're going to tell me what you thought was really sexy when you were 12 <laughs> And it was a night of them telling stories of, of, you know, what fired their blood when they were 12 years old. Um, and it was, it, was, it was a fun night. And from it, I came up with an idea. Uh, and I, I wrote it up and sent it in. And the editor got it through the, the facts, phoned me up immediately, said, this is brilliant. I love it. Only problem. It's pretty much the same as the one we just bought from the guy who recommended you. So can you give me another one? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> I mean, yes, of course I can. Uh, um, so then had to go away and come up with another one. This is something This is something that you're telling us this, and this just makes me think about how frequently in this sort of creative industries, not just in writing, but I think in many creative industries, how much you're required to work for free. It's oh, like, God, yeah. oh, go away and spend like two weeks of your life planning and doing something and come back to me with a synopsis. And then it comes back and they go, no, I don't like this. Or no, I'm sorry, we've decided to go in a different direction or whatever. And you've wasted all this time and effort and energy, and it's it's yeah, really nothing annoying. at the end of it. But also, at the same time, there's also the fact in this kind of industry, creatively, that two people will do the same thing at the same time without the other's knowledge of it. It's kind of weird how often that happens. I, I was going to say it's almost like there's you know something in the, the creative ether, and we dip mm. into it at the same time. Yeah. I mean, the first time I came across it was. Um, science fiction writer Ian Watson, horror writer Stephen Laws. Well, I went to an event in Newcastle where they were, they were well, Gate said, uh, talking about their, their new books. Steve had one called The Worm, and uh, it was a, basically a riff on the lantern worm as a horror novel. And Ian had a book called Fireworm, which was basically a riff on the, uh, the lantern worm and was sort of a science fiction horror novel about past life regression and stuff. They couldn't have been more different, but at the root, they were exactly the same. And one was collapsed, one was hotter. It, it, and it, it is really common. I mean, I don't know what it's like for you guys, but several times, I mean, I've I've been waiting for a release date, thinking, okay, my new book's coming out in six weeks. And I'll, I've gone in the airport, and I've seen a book with a similar storyline suddenly hit the shelf. 
And it's just like, ah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, you're always fearful of that. I think we both have things like that. And we even have things where we've released (laughs) books within like six months of each other. And they've been quite similar and lots of similarities. Same ideas with it. Where did that come from? Well, I mean, I I, I know I was working up an idea that I thought was really, really cool. Um, And then I think I showed showed you the pitch for it. And then I'm like, hang on a minute. That's really, really, really similar in some ways to um to matt's series <laughs> whilst being completely different it's like okay yeah no can't do that um yeah shit happens but yeah so i went through this period anyway with with henderson's where i did i did two preteen romances i did a kid's guide to the internet um and none of them came out they they bought them they paid for them and for some reason changed their mind or cancelled the line they were going to be in and all this sort of stuff. And this is another I, I, this is another thing that people like aspiring writers or people that are listening that you know hope to get into writing and don't understand. I think that the possibility of completing work, handing it in, getting paid for it, but then never having it you know come out. Which they've never seen it come out. Absolutely quite frustrating. But at the same time, yeah, you know, you're getting paid for it, but you never get the acknowledgement. You get paid for it, yeah. But, but I mean, well, I mean, think about the say the kids' guide to the internet. It they 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 contacted me for it. They paid again quite nicely. Um, I delivered it, and I was really happy with it because I'd worked really hard, uh, and uh, it really was a very. I mean, for the age, uh, the the time that it was done. It was a very comprehensive, this is how it all works. This is the technology behind it, but also what you do on your end. And I delivered it and asked the editor, so when's it coming out? And she said, oh, it'll be 14 months. I'm like, well, what's the expletive point of that? Because in three months, Netscape's coming out. And when Netscape launches, everything is going to change because Netscape will give you you know, full proper picture. Uh, there's talk about even being able to like video and stuff on it. Wow, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, stuff that yeah. was unimaginable at this point. And, and if you put this book out in in 14 months, it's going to look stupid. And they said, no, 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 it'll be fine, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. And then, yeah, I think after about six months, they realized, yeah, no, that is completely dead because traditional yeah. publishing couldn't deal with the speed of it. Um, but from all of this, the best thing for young me happened when I, I mean, I, I hadn't given up, but I was at the point where I'm like, this is, this is nightmare fuel. You know, yeah, you're doing all this work and you're getting nowhere. You might be getting a bit of money, but your friends can't see it. They don't believe you. You know, <laughs> they think you're making all this stuff up. You can't possibly be working. These no books are coming out. Um, phone went and the editor said, look, I'm going to ask you two questions. Think carefully before you answer. I'm like, okay. Question number one, do you like space? And I'm like, um, I mean, you mean like, you know, stars and, and astrology, astronomy and all that sort of stuff. I mean, I, I did when I was eight. 
you know when i was when i was a kid i was like or most kids i was fascinated by the idea of space travel and all that so i mean yeah and she said okay and the other question is do you like dinosaurs and i'm like well again maybe when i was seven so seven or eight yeah i liked i like dinosaurs and i like space she's like well great we've got two projects for you but we can't tell you what they are <laughs> Space dinosaurs. But they're to do with space and dinosaurs. It's like, yep, they're to do with space and dinosaurs. I'm like, okay. Can I ask you, am I going to want to do them? And she's like, you're going to want to do them, but I can't tell you what it is until you've signed the paper to say you're going to do them. (laughs) So did they tell you how much money was involved at this stage? Yeah, this is the next question. At at, at this stage, they just said, you know, it's same kind of numbers as before. So right. it's not spectacular money, but it's it's money. Um, and I'm like, okay, uh, fine. Send over the non-disclosure agreement. I'll sign it. Then send over the contract. I'll sign it. And then phone me and tell me what I've signed. So fax comes through. Go down to the post office, pick up the fax, sign the fax, fax it back. Go for this like little dance for about an hour. Get home, phone rings. And she's like, congratulations. Um, you're doing the children's adaptation of Return of the Jedi. What's it got to do with dinosaurs? Aha. Uh-huh. And you're doing the children's adaptation of Jurassic Park 2, The Lost World. Okay. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, okay, yeah, so awesome. My first two published books are going to be for the 1997 re-release of... Um, the Return yeah, of the, the Jedi. Yeah, Jedi. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, with so when Jedi comes through, and uh, and for Lost World when that comes out, so from very strange beginnings, I ended up technically being like a children's writer before I became a writer. You know, before I yeah. actually published my yeah. own stuff. Um, and I mean that was that was ninety seven. It was then what eight years before I did stuff for Games Workshop and that. There was some little small press things and that in between. But it was pretty much anything but an overnight success. So mm. those mm. those two um, properties, the Jurassic Park and the Star Wars one, those actually came out then? Those got published? They came out? They paid for my immigration. Right, okay. That's right. it. <laughs> they paid for the holiday that brought me to Sweden um, and then kept me alive when I was over here long enough to... Uh, to get a job technically they also got me my first job when i was over here because the headmistress at the school i applied to teach at she sits me down in the interview and she's like i have to ask um your name there's something there's something about it and i'm expecting her to say either jimmy savile or savile <laughs> suits you know the usual and and she she opens the desk drawer and takes out the um the return of the jedi book and says, is this you? And I'm like, yep, yeah, that's me. So, yeah, I confiscated it off a kid today. <laughs> how much do you want? To, and she said, how much do you want? That's it. That was the interview. Literally, if he's written Star Wars, <laughs> we're having him at the school. Perfect, the school. Um, so there was no, I'd not done a day's teaching in my life, but I was hired purely because I'd written the Star Wars book mm. to be the new English teacher. Um, Great. Well, can we move on just because uh, we're getting through yeah. time quite a bit here and we've got quite a few questions, but I've that's got fine. one that's slightly 
slightly off the beaten path here I wanted to ask you. Your bio confused me when I read it on Wikipedia and it said you'd, <laughs> colla- you'd collaborated with a famous hip-hop star. And I, I was wondering in my head, you know, I'm thinking in my head, so is, is he on a rap record? Was he doing some kind of, is he like some kind of English Eminem? Obviously <laughs> not. I realised it was a novella that you wrote with this New York rapper well, called Prodigy. How did that yeah. happen? Um, this is really strange because it's not only one I've also ghostwritten about nine others well I'm, for her or... no for other for other rappers oh right, I, right. I've done <laughs> I've done a shitload of hip hop stuff right um, and, so what, what and is what is a hip hop novel what, what I don't understand what is a hip hop is it just like okay. their lyrics brought to life in a book like uh, exactly. thug life type um, yeah. is it going around exactly put, putting you, a cap think, you think about and... you know I say not to talk over you, but yeah, like you, you think of you know um, life on the streets, gang culture, you no know, shows like The Wire. Um, a lot of it is about you know you don't mess with me, I'll get my revenge, and it's it's revenge books and violence, um, and the, you know a lot of. I mean, think like the TV show Hustle, and then make it dirty, sexy money. And that's a that's a hip hop novel, um, and I mean it's really funny. I was I was the front page of the culture section in the New York Times uh, on a Saturday morning right. um, for one of the hip hop novels. Um, now you can see me. I'm, I'm assuming this is actually an audio <laughs> podcast, and no one else can it see is, me. Yeah, yeah, else it can is just an audio podcast, yeah. and... but I do not look like. Um, the authentic voice of the streets. You do not look like Ice T. You look like Snoop Dogg. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I, I I joke about it quite a lot, but the reviews are brilliant. I mean, uh, like one of the reviews of, of of the one I did for Prodigy literally says, you know, only Prodigy could have written this. Yeah, I read that yesterday. I was I was looking yeah. at it. Yeah, <laughs> it's like actually, you know, Albert didn't write a word of it. <laughs> literally, didn't write a word. He he had an idea that he wanted to be a book. I took his idea and I wrote it. Albert uh, is that his name? Albert. That's his name, Albert Prodigy Johnson. Yeah. Right. Um, for for the listeners who don't maybe know hip hop, if you look at the um, the most influential records of the nineteen nineties, somewhere on that list, quite high up, you'll see a record called. Um, the infamous and it's uh, it's by prodigy um or by um mob deep the infamous mm-hmm. and albert is one of the two of as it's prodigy and havoc with the two of them um pretty much one of the one of the albums that define modern hip hop yeah so the guy is a superstar of the genre so it's quite nuts to be to be writing his books now. At one point, we were we were working up a TV show for Fifty Cent, which would have been awesome. Yeah, but would. if you look, yeah, if you look, obviously you'll see that uh, Prodigy had sickle cell, and, and yeah. he died yeah. after yeah. a concert, um, and that was right in the middle of us working up the TV show. Right. So. It would have been brilliant. It would have it would have fitted into Fifty Cent's Power TV series and all that. It would it would have been superb. But 
<laughs> shit happens. Um, very nice guy. Um, a very strange experience. But because of it, for instance, I had the guy who was sat next to Biggie Smalls in the car when he was assassinated asking if I'd write his biography. Um, and and it sort of spiralled from there into other stuff. Um, so, yeah, I think I've done like 10 now. It's um, very strange. Wow. Do you actually like that music? No. No, no. <laughs> Unequivocal no there. It's not, not even pretending. <laughs> For me, how, how do you how do you manage to get I mean, is it how do you manage to get the authentic voice of what I'm presuming is lots of predominantly black people from America mm-hmm. when you're a white guy from Britain living in Sweden? <laughs> Sweden. <laughs> not not just a white guy from Britain, it's the white middle class publicly educated public school education. I mean it's it's the absolute opposites yeah of, of what i need to portray um in truth it's it's like any writing gig and you've heard that phrase write what you know that doesn't mean write the life you understand that means go out and learn right. what you're going to write about so that means for instance immersing yourself in the subculture reading the books watching the movies listening to the music talking to the guys uh, watching interviews of them talking to each other, then you know, deep diving into like the urban slang and all of that, whilst also trying to think we're all essentially the same. Yeah. And issues that could concern us. You know, we might be worried about how to get out of a certain situation, like we're in a contract we don't want, situation with a publisher we don't want. Uh, something dragging us down you flick that across and go okay well he's in a situation that he doesn't want a contract with a drug dealer he doesn't want how do we get out of this and you just try and pivot around similar human issues yeah and and i mean it works i will tell you a funny story for two seconds when hnic came out uh prodigy did a, a big um launch in brooklyn they hide out a brewery it was you know banked seating loads of people i think you know several hundred people in there for it and he read a section of the book and then he played a game with the audience where he'd read a line and ask them who wrote it him or me (laughs) and uh he read a line and the hand went up and everyone's like that was you and he's like nope that was steve and he read another line, that was you. No, that was Steve. And he did it 10 times. And every time it was, no, that was Steve. And that was his way of saying, I didn't write it. And giving me credit for having done the mm-hmm. actual writing mm-hmm. of his story. But it was so funny that everybody was absolutely convinced all of these really cool, you know, urban, ethnic, say black lines were, were mine and not his. But they were convinced that only he could write without authenticity. Well, this, it's interesting. There's a whole conversation to be had there about the whole modern thing of whether only certain people can act in certain roles and only certain people yeah. can write certain stories and all this sort of stuff. I don't think we probably want to delve yeah. into that too much, but it is an interesting perspective on it. It's a tough. It's a tough conversation. Yeah. Yeah, you're always going to have people that will be angry about it. Oh yeah, I say as, as much as. I mean, I'm actually a massive advocate of authentic voices. 
you know, the, the whole idea that you don't really want a white middle class rich boy telling the story that isn't his. And the only reason I do it or have done it is because it's in partnership with somebody who otherwise couldn't get their story out. So it's it's helping them get their story out rather than me profiting off their story. Yeah, or pretending sense. to be them without or their pretending to be consent. Their but I, but I guess I, mean, I guess they I guess people would say yeah, but they could have got the story out with a writer yeah, from a their own background help, yeah. helping yeah. them out. You know, but they picked me. Yeah, that's the right. one. But they they came to me and asked me. People seem yeah. to enjoy it, uh, so that's that's what well, matters. That's oh, hey, and and I'm banned in at least thirty prisons in America. So yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> so you've worked with all these different, you've worked with all these different people. You've worked with you know, really diverse sort of things. You've already told us about the children's books and the different IPs and stuff. And there's a couple of projects that both I, I know that um, looking at your background that Stephen and I are both jealous about um and one of them is um slain we mentioned earlier on um yeah. i both Stephen and i grew up reading 2000 ad and i remember the first i actually had the i used to get it weekly the 2000 ad yeah. delivered, yeah, and, I, and i remember the first um slain comic when it came out and i was i, I used to play dungeons and dragons well, i still do but i was you know really yeah. into all the fantasy stuff then and so yeah it was, it was amazing uh, and you've written a couple of slain books, and in fact, this is how I first, when I first spoke to you, I told you, I, yeah. I, I, I remember your name. I've, <laughs> I've got the, yeah, I've got the your slain, slain novels on, on my, yeah. on my shelves. <laughs> and um, so, was it something you enjoyed doing? Because it's something that you know, both Stephen and I, you know, really, really like that character and those stories, two thousand AD. Um, slain was it something genuinely hard? Yeah, I read an interview with you yesterday. Actually, and he said you'd read. Basically everything to do with slain, and then you still get people saying that you'd you'd done it wrong. Oh, but this is the <laughs> yeah. No, I, I literally I I I actually acquired every single episode of Slain ever written and read through them all. The problem was when I was hired, the remit wasn't to tell the story as Pat had written it. It was to reimagine the story. Right. And I mean, that's a fucking nightmare. You know, because you are on a hiding into nothing. The minute yeah, the word reimagine yeah. comes into something, you are screwed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I hadn't really, I hadn't really focused on that aspect of it when they'd offered. They said, Would you like to write slain? And I'm a kid who grew up reading 2000 AD. Yeah. I'm like, yes. I mean, absolutely. There one of my favorite characters of all time up there perhaps with like you know uh, nemesis the warlock uh, um yeah judge anderson there are some absolute favorites mm -hmm. i would kill to write slain absolutely and uh, they said great but what we want is we want a, a novel of slain's youth up to him being kicked out and i'm like well okay pat's covered all that basically so that's easy. And like, yeah, but we don't want you to use anything that Pat's done. Now, what I didn't know at this time was that, okay, none of this is common knowledge, um, but I'm happy to talk about it. I don't care about NDAs. So, <laughs> so basically, Pat had 
pitched Mark Gascoigne to write the books. And Mark had delighted in saying no. And then had gone and hired me without me knowing that Pat wanted to do them. Pat had pitched doing Slain as a youth and doing his, uh, his you know, coming of age story. And Mark had said no. And then came to me and said, do a reimagining of Slain's coming of age story. Now, literally, he's, he's taking the piss out of Pat, really. Hey, he stole um, his idea then, really. Yeah. I mean, literally, he's, he's just gone, take that, give it to somebody else. Yeah. So this um, just for, for for anyone listening, this is Pat Mills, who's the creator of of the slain character. Then, so yeah, okay. and so then what happened was Pat wrote a blog that said anybody who writing slain was a moral parasite. <laughs> now I had no idea about this. I hadn't seen it. I knew nothing of it. Um, I still thought, oh, really cool, getting to write slain. Yeah, um, and and. Basically, it was announced I was doing it, and Christ, I mean, it was fairly nightmarish. It sounds um, it. Oh, we haven't touched on the nightmarish part because Pat was so against it. the The two thousand AD forum, they all sort of rose up mm-hmm. in his defence. So yeah. my website was hacked. Oh. Um, they they replaced the photos of Doctor Who and stuff, the other characters I'd done, and stuck like Jimmy Savile in a gold lame tracksuit on the side. Um, they moved my books to the gay and lesbian section in Waterstones, like that was a huge punishment, uh, making it impossible to find the new book when it came out, obviously it wouldn't sell. Um, at one point, some guy threatened to turn up at a book signing I was doing and slash my face with a, a Stanley knife. Um, nice. And it just sort of went on and on. And it was it was... It was stressful and annoying, and it made it really hard to want to write it. And I I went to the forum and, and literally said, look, just give me a chance because I love this character. You know, I don't want to be known as the guy who up slain. Mm-hmm. To which then there's lots of jokes going, oh, no, that's already been done. Pat up years ago. <laughs> so it's like, okay, I don't I don't understand the possessiveness, etc. But I do understand Pat has been screwed here. Yeah. And had I known, I wouldn't have done it. Um and I and I need to warn you, it's a reimagining, which means stuff you recognize is not going to be as you recognize it. And you're going to think, I don't know anything, but trust me, I've read it religiously back to front. Um, and I, the the review that 2008D did of it even cited sort of halfway down uh, it's much better than they thought it was going to be and it was something along the lines of the treatment of the author was one of the darker days for the 2008D forums or something it was like an admission that they they were quite horrible um, Gosh. and then the second book came out and the second book is actually considerably better than the first because it broke free. It didn't need to reimagine what was there. It was all new. There was nothing previously there. So it was just me writing Slain. And I had a lot more fun with it. And I was all set to start the third and final, which would have been a retelling of The Horned God and would have been just 
to write because that's my favorite comic and uh games workshop lost the rights and it went back to rebellion and that was yeah. it it died right and for at least i think nine years i kept getting emails asking when i was going to write the final book yeah that's a shame but i, I yeah. think the 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 thing to take away for this story is you can annoy thug gangster rappers and from new york just don't annoy 2000 ad fans Pretty much, mate. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. But actually, the people that go around shooting each other are less scary than the yeah. 2000 AD. That's it. Less yeah. scary, less threatening. Yeah. It's, Sounds uh, a bit crazy. It was a, it was a very, it was a very, very strange time. It was very. It must have been really frightening. Actually, I mean, we're laughing, but it must have been pretty scary to think some crazed slain fans going to actually turn up at a book signing and attack you. There was a, there was a piece. Say there was a there was a part that really got to me. And that was when I found out that a fellow writer who worked for Games Workshop was quietly stirring the pot and making them worse. Right. And then I found out that he had actually wanted to write the book. And obviously yeah. it was like bitterness. Yeah, the jealousy. That, yeah. That, that kept him stirring it and then spiking the pot. And it's yeah. just like, I mean, get a life get over it um but weirdly what should have been a great experience i put down as the single worst writing experience in my life that's a shame yeah it sounds pretty pretty awful really yeah so moving on steve you you didn't expect that did you when you talked about well that was was dark (laughs) i did not expect that at all okay so steven steve you've written under a few pseudonyms what was yeah. the thinking behind that? And do you think it's a mistake to split your brand in that way? Because we've both kind of said that we think it'd be a mistake for us. It would confuse readers and probably result in less sales. Uh, so what's your experience been? Considering my newest book coming out in April is also under a different name. Um, there is a very strong logic to pseudonyms. I mean, number one, if... If you're a fan of Warhammer and Slain and you go and buy Steve's crime novel, you're going to be really upset that it's not Warhammer-like or Slain-like. So it's a way of protecting the reader from picking up the wrong kind of book. Okay. Um, The last thing I want is for somebody to feel cheated when they pay their own money for it. Of course, I want to think that you're going to love it, whatever, because it's still me. Mm-hmm. It's still my kind of storytelling. It's still my kind of characters. But I, I'm you know, smart enough to know that actually, you know, people are drawn to genres as well and not necessarily names. And and people like us who can tell you the publisher of books, etc. We're the freaks. <laughs> and, you know, if I talk to my mum, my mum might not even know the name of the author of the book she's reading, but she's really enjoying it. Yeah. Yeah, I know mm. what you mean. Um, so you know, because we hang up on these details, we're we're different. Uh, I think career-wise, there's another very strong thing in favour of a pseudonym, and that is centralised buying from from traditional bookstores, and the fact that if, say, your first book comes out and Waterstones buy in ten copies for each store, but only sell seven copies. 
when book two comes up for ordering, they only order seven copies. Mm-hmm. So it takes up less space on the shelf. And mm-hmm. this time it only sells four copies. So when book three comes out, they only order four copies, which gets even smaller on the shelf. And they may only sell one. And if they only sell one, that's it. They're not going to buy in the next one. So there is, and, and computers don't forget. I, I had a conversation with Tim Powers years ago now about how computers were the bane of his life because it used to be that his books could come out win the world fantasy award but not sell and he could go to another publisher and still get a decent advance to live off and write a great book that might win the world fantasy or be nominated for the hugo or whatever but still not sell and the lack of actual sales was kind of lost yeah but now what you're saying but what you're saying though is that sales in, in that the, the pseudonym then is it becomes a way of avoiding poor sales. But if you've got good sales, then surely stick with Apart the same name. From, as I say, if you're if you're same movie genre, if you take your same name, you're then making it so that your customer can't trust the next book that comes out to be of the kind they like. Oh, that's a fair surely, point. Surely you can tell yeah. what, but surely you can tell what genre it is by the title and the cover and the the blurb and everything else. I mean, Stephen King writes multiple genres. I, I always go back to Stephen King. I think if he wasn't selling books, um, maybe he. I mean, I know he did a bit. He's probably got his but... own section in Waterstones. I, I was actually going to say, I think Stephen King is a genre unto himself. Well, he's a he's a yeah. brand, right? So this is it. So if you've got a strong yeah, enough brand, he is a maybe brand. You can stick. Yeah, but the likes of Stephen, uh, he's maybe got like a section and. The crime, you know, if he writes crime books, they're not going to put Stephen Savile in a crime section and then put Stephen Savile in, you know, some other section. You know, they're probably going to want to keep Stephen Savile in the same section by, you know, name or whatever. Well, this is this is the thing they don't. If you go into Waterstones, where I might, if if I, if I was on the file under, actually, if we go back to the beginning of my career, um, Dylan's in Newcastle. They closed the genre section and they moved all the horror and fantasy upstairs into the general fiction section. And it meant you had to go through all the books to find what you wanted. And it was a nightmare. But it would have been ideal for me because my shelf space would have been much wider. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he's done quite a few books. But now, if you go into uh, Waterstones, you've got to go to the children's section to see those couple of kid books floating around. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's all spread everywhere. Yeah. You've got to go into the specialist part of the crime section, which has my Sherlock Holmes novel, because Holmes has its own section in the bookshop. (laughs) You know, you've then got to go over to the the media tie-in section of the fantasy section, because that's where the Warhammer stuff is. Then the TV section of the fantasy section, because that's where Primeval and Stargate and Doctor Who are. And none of my books are together on the shelf. Mm-hmm. So they end up being like one copy slipped in all over the place. And that that is kind of a sales nightmare. Yeah, that's what I was meaning. Uh, yeah, whereas Stephen yeah. King will get his own yep. stand dedicated to yeah. him, whereas you're dotted everywhere. Yeah, I yeah. am completely everywhere. It's an interesting one. I mean, I, I can see both a, sides of the argument around... Yeah. around well, it's like to me and you, Matthew, we basically just do historical fiction, so we've no need to try a different, a different yeah, well, at the moment, yeah. But I mean, if, if, if say, if, if Matthew, if you turned around and went, you know what, I'm going to do what I've always wanted to do, and I'm going to do a, a David Gemmell-style 
um, Reganti with a, a bit of the magic in it rather than just straight Northumbrian. Thanks, man. Your general historical fantasy reader, some of them will love it. Some of them would never forgive you. And your covers would be very similar. Yeah. Your titles would be very similar. Yeah, the fonts would and you everything. really want to risk pissing off the guys who are your bread and butter? Well, it's and, interesting. And we'll we'll have to find done. out. We'll have to find out. I think <laughs> this is this year yeah. will become an interesting time for me because, or maybe next year. Oh, you write the fantasy um, book, Matthew? Is this a scoop that we've not heard about? Uh, I'm not writing a fantasy, but I'm writing something different in a different. So at the moment, it's still well, it's a historical fiction, but a very different genre. Well, a cowboy within the one that you've been talking about. Well, could be. Well, that's yeah, still historical so, fiction, though. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, I I have a feeling. I, was gonna, I mean, I'm hoping I was that people say that's... read something set in the 19th century and they'll think well you know it's still historical fiction but i i i was going to say if you're if you're leaping across to cowboy for instance even if you're not but if you were leaping to cowboy that's such a different genre to um medieval fantasy yeah they're not going to follow you some yeah. might come from curiosity it's interesting but... we will we, we, time will tell <laughs> yeah i mean <laughs> Moving on, then we, is that what you're Well, I was, I was going to say we're both fans of David Gemmell. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we're, we're all fans, fans of David Gemmell. Yeah. 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 yeah, My least favorite Gemmell books are the cowboy ones. Oh, the Simon Shano ones, or whatever his name is. Yeah, the John Shano. Yeah. yeah, John Shano. That's on yeah. No, I've John not even Shano. read them. I know what you mean. I've not. I've not yeah. even bothered reading them. No, and and that's the thing. I'm not steeped in the cowboy genre in that way. You yeah. know, Destry comes to town and, and, and all of that stuff. That's not my thing. Um, I don't particularly like cowboy movies and all of that. And that actually bled over still into um, Stephen King's Dark Tower stuff. I'm not, I don't know. I dropped out after a book um, because I'm not cowboy. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think I'm in any way, the only fantasy fan who's not a cowboy fan. Um, so that's, I think, a strong argument for why a pseudonym is a good idea. But that's just me. Yeah, it's an interesting. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, I don't know. Anyway, we could probably talk about pseudonyms and genres. I think yeah. I think there's both sides of the, of the coin. I can see, I can understand both. You've worked on RPGs and mobile games, but... Yes. Well... I wanted to, because I'm quite jealous again, we mentioned Slain, but I wrote for a, a video game for the Xbox called Hood Outlaws and Legends. Right. But it was only really, only really did character and map backgrounds and, you know, things like that. There was no story in it. So I'm, I'm really jealous that you got to write the Battlefield 3 storyline. I've never actually played that game. I don't think I've played Battlefield 4 and 5, but not that one. But I would really have loved to do it. So how did that work? Well, it, it was it was a it was a, it was a, it was a strange one that they came to me because one of the guys working there had read my novel Silver, and basically they you they have a phrase in games it's called going to gate, and you know you do a lot of prep work to get ready, and you have to get through the gate to become a real thing. So they were doing all this stuff to get to gate. And I think they failed to get through three times. Right. So Battlefield 3 was turning into a real 
you know, um, the opposite of a cash cow. Um, you know, it, it was it was a, it was a, it was a cluster basically. Um, and and one of the guys on the team had read my book and went, look, this character Constantine, Connie, he's exactly what we want for for Dini. Let's let's just bring this guy in and get him to write it. So I went in, I met with the guys and we talked and they told me their story, which was basically a very derivative, um, basically Taliban terror on the New York subway. And, and I'm like, look, I don't, that's just not very interesting. And it's a little bit, you know, hoorah America. It's a bit like um, that Spider-Man scene where, you know, uh, they're all lined up on the bridge. And, you know, you don't f with America uh, or, you know, New York, whatever it was. It, it very much, it has a feel that's not, it's not European. And, and Battlefield's a big European game. Right. To which the bosses said, well, what would you do? And, and I said, off the top of my head, what would I do? I'd, I'd blow up the Eiffel Tower. And they just looked at me like, what? And I'm like, well, it's a big, spectacular thing. And it's France. And, you know, as a Brit, historically, we've got a thing against France. I, mean, I don't really. I just think it'd be quite funny. Um, and they said, well, OK, uh, talk us through it. What's your thinking? And I'm like, OK, here's, here's how my brain works. Um, the very last video that Bin Laden sent from his cave urged the terrorists to rise up against the nodes of the economy. It said that um, America was a paper tiger economy. Basically, what I would do is I would make Battlefield 3 about terrorist attacks on stock exchange. I would take out the Euronext stock exchange in Paris. I would have threats of, you know, say, um, suitcase nuke having been stolen, getting lost, being somewhere in Paris. In fact, I can visualize the perfect scene. I said, making it up as I was going along, where you chase the guy, the terrorist, through the streets of Paris. You actually, you're in this horrible situation where you have to kill innocent gendarme to get to him because the greater threat is there and he's getting away and they're shooting at you. You get to him, you bring him down, you open the suitcase and there's just a sign that says, boom. And behind you, the nuclear bomb goes off and blows up the Eiffel Tower and you lose. And that's your your way into the game is you're really f***ed. And they just looked at me and went, OK, can you get this on the 10 o'clock news? Can you make it so contentious that they complain about us? And they say, you know, how can these people do something so awful? Uh, because that was on the back of, I think it was Call of Duty had the scene in the airport. Where they were yeah, that was, that shooting, was too, too much. Yeah, when you go through and you have yeah. to, as a player, you had to shoot hostages and stuff. It was, it was awful. Yeah, yeah it was wasn't good. Exactly. And and they literally said to me, "Well, can you can you get us on the news with something as contentious as that?" And I'm like, "Well, you know, kill, killing the good policeman is pretty contentious. You know, literally yeah, having yeah. to kill the yeah. policeman to get to it." So yeah, I mean, I could, I think I could do this. Um, and for the next month. I was locked in meetings with them designing a story um, and say what I think ended, I ended up working for about two months, writing the whole story out beat for beat right the way through the campaign, everything that happened, all the twists, all the turns, but not writing the dialogue, just writing the story. Um, 
the beats, the twists, all the fun stuff. Um, and as I sort of mentioned at the beginning, there was also a Battlefield 3 novel, which was Andy McNabb. Um, and, and, and all of this came from my two, three months working with EA doing it. It was it was a hell of an experience, really. And it, I mean, it's a, it's a triple A game. The the, the yeah. pressure on it's quite high mm -hmm. in comparison to the uh, the mobile games that I've been doing. Uh, funnily, the second game you mentioned in the intro doesn't exist, and and never got beyond the gate. Is that the Viking one? No, the Viking one's oh. out there. Oh, right. But the other one, the uh, dark fairy tale, didn't get through the gate. And instead has been replaced by, and now this is this is one that's going to call to Matthew's age more than yours, I think. Monkey. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Are you yeah. Right. monkey? Right. So right. I've just spent the last six months writing a cyberpunk version of Monkey. Oh, brilliant! Yeah, and uh, so that's in that's in closed beta at the moment, coming into open beta in a couple of weeks. And I just I've just seen the uh, the manga style anime trailer for it, and it looks superb. Um, I mean, the Chinese do absolutely gorgeous artwork and games and stuff, so I'm, I'm quite lucky with that. Um, and I've been doing I've been doing. Um, do you know Richard Ford? Yeah, who writes Is that RS Ford? Richard? Yeah, yeah, we do. RS Cullen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Richard and I have, have just spent six months um, building a samurai, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, World? gothic oh. horror. Um, Lovecraftian samurai. All right. All right. Okay. Yeah. That, that existentialist horror. That's the word I was looking for. Um, called Kaiden, Kaiden Tales or Kaiden Universe. Um, and that was, all, that was all funded by NFT money. The guys did loads of samurai art with NFTs. Um, wow. And, I mean, they've gotten a lot of money. And and now we're actually making an Xbox game out of it. Nice. Uh, Xbox and PlayStation is what we're working on at the moment. Um, and, again, loads of fun. Um, and, weirdly, what's it? It's the, it's the yes. So in three days, so by the time this goes out, it will have happened, they're actually releasing... Uh, a novella of mine that I've written for the game, but they're doing it with all these um, like web three technologies. So depending on where you are, when you're reading it, you're going to get these like ghostly, creepy sound effects and stuff coming out of the book. Right. Cool. Yeah. So, so not a theme tune, but act actual, you know, um, clanking of chains. If mm. there's change mentioned, Book and 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 these eerie sighs and all of these sort of you know eldritch noises. So how does this work? Going, is this on is this on the Kindle or something? Yeah, it's on the Kindle. It's on the Kindle all right. and, uh, on, on all of those. Um, and it's all it's all Web three technology. Um, it's it's surreal the stuff these computer boys can do. Wow, um, that sounds amazing. But, I mean, it's does, yeah. as well. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I mean, we, we're we're kind of running out of time, getting towards the end of yeah. the of the of the time that we've got. But um, of all of those sort of things that you've done, the, the different types of writing and our writing with these games, do you enjoy 
which do you enjoy most? I mean, you enjoy the, the normal novel writing or, or are you now tending more towards the digital I, stuff? And I mean, I'm, I'm a novelist at heart. I don't write okay. short stories. I'm a novelist at heart. I find that every story I want to tell runs at least 90 up to 120, 130,000 words. I can't tell a story that runs 300 to 400,000 or nine books or 12 books or whatever it is. <laughs> the idea of staying with one character that long would, I mean, I, yeah, uh, he mimes blowing his brains out because you can't see it. I, I, it would kill me. Um, and this is a conversation I have with Rich quite a lot because we talk about, you know, actually collaborating on a, uh, a fantasy series or whatever. And, and he knows I get really, really bored with the same characters and same story. See, I, I think want... that's why you've done the pseudonyms, I think, because you get bored with your own persona. <laughs> And you just want yeah. to jump to be someone different and do something different. Be someone different. But there's, I mean, there's also something incredibly fun about, say, Black Flag, the uh, the Matt Langley book, which was, uh, well, it, technically, I don't know if you can't catch as like runner up nominee, you know, when they, they, they get to that last stage, but it, it won the quarter, but didn't win the whole thing uh, for the People's Book Prize. It's something, there's something really good fun about no one having a clue who you are and that you can write a book for Cambridge University Press. That's, there's a, a kind of kudos to Cambridge University Press that the clean name doesn't come with the baggage of Warhammer and all the other stuff when you do that. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and doesn't come with the baggage of hip hop, for instance. Yeah. It, uh, so it's... Yeah, it's an interesting one. Yeah. Um, so you've done all these different projects. You've worked with loads of different, yeah. really interesting people. Out of all of those different things, have you? Can you think of a, of one or two amusing stories? Perhaps is there anyone you've worked with that you've absolutely hated? Um, have you only loved working with any specific people? <laughs> did anything um, hilarious did, happen with did these anything rappers? Anything really funny? Did you go rapping? Did you go out partying with the rappers? <laughs> um, I I did get invited to concerts with the the rap crews which was quite fun um did you go i did i went to yeah, one yeah i went i went to one because you kind of have to yeah you like backstage yeah. with the with the entourage doing the whole <laughs> yeah. thing that's it backstage with the entourage doing the whole thing um and that was man look at me that's it with the bling <laughs> you i can I imagine you have the bling and the gold plated pistol and the groupies sitting there and the groupies I, sitting I, in your lap no i'll I'll tell you what was funny about it, right? Now, now imagine uh, it's it's a it's a concert venue with about six, seven thousand people in there, and they're all there to see Prodigy, and they're you know they're all hyped, they're all right up for it, and 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 Prodigy into the mic is like we've got a very special person in the audience tonight, and the guy's like yeah, and they're all thinking it's going to be someone really really cool, right? And it's like yeah, we've got a guy's coming all the way from Europe, and they're like yeah. yeah. This guy's incredible. He's the, you know, and then it's, 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 it's my, my writing partner, Steve. Silence. <laughs> <laughs> Who? What? Who is this guy? Brilliant. When you said his writing partner, they probably thought you were writing all the rap songs. <laughs> yeah exactly it was because well they were i don't know who they were expecting you know like asap rocky or whatever to get some I, thankfully i was just sat in the audience i wasn't on the stage for that that would have just be curl up <laughs> and die moment um i mean funny stories um 
I mean, the web, I mean, I've, I talked about it at the beginning. I mean, the, the fact that those early short story sales were all porn mags. Um, I went on, uh, I went on holiday with my girlfriend and my mum found the stash of porn mags under my bed <laughs> and threw them all out. <laughs> so I don't have copies of like my first 12 or 13 sales. That's, that's probably a good, good place to, to kind of wrap up the, the main part of the, of the interview. The best-selling, best-selling writer nobody's ever heard of, Stephen Saville. But we we ask each of our guests um, a couple of questions at the end of every episode. Um, one, the first one is, uh, what have you been reading and watching in the last few days? Reading, I've I've actually been rereading uh, *Mythago Wood* by Robert Holcroft. Oh, one of uh, my favourites. One of my one of my favourite books of all time. But I'm rereading it for a purpose. Um, Rob's estate are doing a new um, anthology of stories inside um, Mythago Wood, and, and I've been invited to write one of the stories. Oh my goodness, I'm so jealous! I know. Oh. I'm I'm jealous of myself. If Although that makes I would sense. be terrified if I'd been asked to do that. I did. I, um, yeah, yeah that, that would be quite terrifying. But um, well, good luck. So we've got the for the last question. Uh, what have you been listening to, and do you listen to music when you write? I listen to music all the time when I write because I tend to be a coffee shop writer. Yeah. So I put the headphones on, uh, noise cancelling, uh, in ear, and it it becomes like an immersive shell, and it's yeah. really good for narrowing the world down to just the computer screen. Um, and I, I see nothing. I'm totally undisturbed. In terms of what I've been listening to recently, I was going to say with Christine McVie dying, I've I've done a little run of Fleetwood Mac and Rumours and um, Tango in the Night. Um, I've gone through a stack of Pearl Jam again for a while. Um, I think the best thing that I've listened to recently, there's a... Um, do you guys know Beth Hart? Heard the name. I don't uh, think so. She's, no. a, she's yeah, she's like an American blues rock singer, um, and she's she's the one album I listen to is Beth Hart covering Led Zepp. Well, that's that's maybe where I've heard it because I was as soon as you said Beth Hart, I thought of Robert Plant. Yeah. Well, yeah. she say so she she covers um, a lot of the classics, you know, Black Dog, and all the way all the way through, and yeah. her voice is just incredible. Um, it's it's cheating I, though because uh, she's a woman; she can sing higher. It's it's I, the difficult yeah. to sing. It's difficult <laughs> to sing those songs for a guy, you know. For a woman, it's not That's so right. difficult. And 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 because I am very analog, um, so I've just bought myself a new turntable upstairs. And when I bought the turntable, I, I ordered a bunch. I saw like Talking Heads, "Stop Making Sense," um, um, Dire Straits, "Money for Nothing," because. There's nothing like you know um, Romeo and Juliet, Tunnel of Love. Yeah. yeah, the the guitar playing on that is incredible. Whatever you think about anything else, um, and it's such an immersive sound. I just I love it. Yeah. Um, and the new book that I'm starting work on, the main character is a DJ, and this is the shit he obsesses about. <laughs> All right, that sounds good. So is that that's is what that we a, do anyway? Yeah, is, that's yeah. what we obsess about music as well. Yeah, yeah, constantly. <laughs> 
Well, thanks ever so much for your time and for all of the, the stuff. I'm sure we could have talked for a lot longer. It feels like we could have gone. Yeah, on. with the whole list of questions We've and we another... only get halfway through them. But what I, my takeaway from it is that probably quite a lot of our listeners will have read your work during the 90s just by finding it in a hedge. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Pages stuck together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, do you know? I was gonna say if they haven't read it, they'll have seen the pictures that went on. Exactly. With it. Well, that, yeah. was, that was a good part. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks very much. Thank you, Stephen. It's been a pleasure, guys. That's it for today's episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. Please let us know if you have any questions or things you'd like us to cover in future episodes. You can contact us on the Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash rockpaperswordspodcast, or on Twitter, where we are at rockswords. We're not, actually. Where we are at rock underscore swords. You can find out more about our books on matthewharfey.com and stephenamackay.com, and we're also both on Twitter and Facebook. We'd love to hear from readers and listeners, so drop by and say hello. The theme music is written and performed and copyrighted by us. So until next time on Rock, Paper, Swords, it's goodbye from me, Matthew Harfey. And it's goodbye from me, Stephen A. McKay. And remember, whatever action and adventure you have going on in your life, be kind. Stay safe. And happy reading. Let's just start again.